you learn and understand in may this magnificent lesson this morning uh, be glorified may your name be glorified and thank you for john amen, amen. Uh, good morning my friends i'm excited to see you and excited to study with you about what we're going to talk about today and it's on the board for you uh, this course is about beyond blessed grace. The first thing we're going to do today is look up Romans 5.20 because I want to continue to anchor your mind on this theme that this course is about, beyond blessed grace. You notice today I've titled it uh, Beyond Blessed Grace via Jesus, a.k.a. Venus, uh, and uh, that's eventually where this course is going to end up, seeing the association between Jesus and uh, Venus. And I do not see my friend here uh, today. I oh, know your friend. My, I'm, looking at my, I'm looking for my particular friend. Come on in. And she is a, um, a massage therapist, and she wrote to me this week and said she was fascinated with this stuff about Venus. I don't know who she is. And she, she said she wants to come to this class. And so I invited her. And, but you wouldn't believe the stuff that's out on the Internet on the topic of Venus. I mean, people all over the world on, under every spectrum of belief care about Venus on, like, all kinds of different levels. Do a little experiment. Go on Google and type in Venus and see what's going on out there in the world today. But here it is. Jesus has seized Venus in the first century and identified himself with Venus in such a way that if we would point this out to some people, they may see Jesus in a new light. His own self-identification, I am Venus, I am the bright morning star. That's what he says in Revelation. And so we're eventually going to work that way because what I'm trying to show you is, is that this is sort of a mythic notion when Jesus does this, when he says, I am the bright morning star. It's sort of mythic in its under concept. And I want to show you today, <clears throat> after I talk with Jack Milligan, Judge Milligan, on the prophetic perfect tense. He wrote me a question. We had a dialogue this week, and he's going to share with you what he learned on this tense. And then we're going to go to Athens with Jesus uh, and see how Paul talked to people in the first century who had never heard of Jesus. Then we're going to jump to the 20th century and go to Oxford, England, and we're going to see how J.R.R. Tolkien explained things to C.S. Lewis on a warm October night in October 31st that blew Lewis's head open and eventually led him to becoming a Christian and how that changed definitely the 20th century, both of those men together. And then we're going to try to put it all together in a grand synthesis. So, Jack, would you come up here, please? And... Um, Let's have a little talk on the prophetic perfect tense. And as you're coming, the first thing I'm going to let you do is just tell me, tell us, what happened this week that you came up with this question. And maybe you, even you, show us in the Bible. You all know, no, no dumb questions, John. <laughs> right? So I, I sent John an email as a result of our Thursday morning class. We were studying the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which of course is the prophecy. And uh, as we studied it, it was apparent that the language is both in terms of the past tense and the f present tense. And so I wrote John 
a short question. The question, is there a Hebrew language lesson, reason for admixture of past and future tense in the prophecy? Sent from my Bible study, John. <laughs> uh, and probably not unsurprisingly, I've now got four or five pages here <laughs> of answer from dear John. But, uh, yeah. I tried to make it clear. Well, you, you did. And, uh, it's a wonderful answer, and we ought to circulate it to everybody here, because uh, you're interviewing me, but... Yeah, no, I want you to just talk. Well... I'll, I'll <laughs> ask you some questions. One, uh, I think as a child, the problem that bothered me when my parents said, unless you accept, you will not enter, was how could Jesus die for me then for my sins now. Uh, you know, I'm a chronological kind of guy. I was a math major. I don't understand two and two doesn't make four there. It would be like me saying to uh, John that uh, we went to Columbus in November uh, 2012 when we kicked the devil out of Ohio State. Hadn't <laughs> <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> That was uh, the essence of my uh, communication with you, Okay, John. now, what was the exact text in Isaiah 53, just so we can quickly look at it, that was in the past tense? It's yeah. in the past. Do you remember it? No. It's, well, it was, I'll, I'll help then. I'm sure you, you will. If you go and read Isaiah 53, when he's describing the suffering servant that he sees clearly in his mind, this is one of the suffering servant songs. That's what it's called. He describes what the suffering servant is going to do in his future using the prophetic perfect tense. And in other words, he describes it what we would call in past tense language. And that's what Jack was like, well, how can you do that? Because Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. How can you describe what he's going to do uh, 700 years in the future and use the past tense language to do it. Does that make sense to you? <clears throat> um, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Not he will be led to the lamb as a like a uh, to be slaughtered. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and so forth and so on. In other words, Isaiah is what? Seeing, if that's Jesus and I'm Isaiah... He's suddenly catapulted by God's spirit, I believe, into the, what hit, would be his future. But since God is outside of time, right? God can see the whole thing, and God can shoot down into Isaiah's mind what it looks like from God's point of view. And from God's point of view, it's so certain that it's going to happen that God can describe it as if it's already been done. Does that make sense to you? Joanne says, I, I don't know. <laughs> Can you at least grab the, the consent? That would be such an amazing, like what if God could give you that state of consciousness for some beloved grandchild that you have? It would have to come from God. Yes, it would have to come from God. But can, can you think of some people that you love that you're worried about? And what if God suddenly gave you a vision of what would be their future, and it was so certain, you could see it so clear, that for you, it would almost be like you could describe it, 
in the past. Okay, that's the prophetic perfect. And Jack, what else? I mean, after, okay, so I write you this answer like I'm giving to them. Then what happened? Well, you, you give me a lot of answers, and I've studied your uh, epistle uh, <laughs> since then. And, and I, th I think we do have a problem in English, and, and we need to spend more attention to Plato and some of these things. And suddenly, what you're teaching takes on a relevance that's probably the wrong word because that's not too perfect, but uh, a relevance in terms of our Christian walk. Right, I, right now. I, I'm really impressed with beginning to think about the prophets and prophecy in a brand new way. Uh, it, to me, it has been sort of a prediction that this is going to happen kind of thing, mm -hmm. but uh, you have enlightened me that there's a lot more to it than that. And so right. And in fact, this was great, great for Jack to write to me because then it got me all riled up this week. <laughs> and I wrote a bunch of stuff in my uh, journal. Jack, if you want to sit down now, that's great. Uh, thank you so much. I, I wrote some, a lot of stuff that he wrote because it reactivated within me that, yes, we are called to live in the prophetic perfect tense. Do you realize this? We are all called by God to receive from the Holy Spirit God's understanding of the future and regard it to be so certain that we regard it as if it has already happened, as if it's a certainty, and then in the present, we live that way as if God's future was now. So here's a simple one. Where did Jesus say the kingdom of God was? inside of you. So, therefore what? The kingdom of God is here now. And then God pours all this truth into us from the New Testament and tells us what is true right now for us. For example, um, therefore, since you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. What? No, no, the resurrection is going to happen at the last day. Really? What does Paul and what do the other apostles tell us? What's true? Since you have already been raised with Christ. It's already happened. The kingdom of God has already come to you. You've already been made new. You should be experiencing Jesus' resurrection right now. It's not just a future. It's a right now thing. And if that's what Jack is saying. You lived your whole life thinking, aha, the prophets. This is where I go into the future and read about what's going to happen. Isn't that interesting? But then we always come back to the present and we say, oh yeah, okay, so the resurrection's going to happen and there's going to be no more tears and everyone's going to be happy and oh, that's sweet. And, but it's 2012 and what? And it, we don't particularly feel like we're in the kingdom of God, right? So we are called to, to be the exhibitors of God, the harbingers, the ones who live in the present as if what God is going to do is already a reality. Oh, yes, sir.
Yeah, there's a measure of truth to that. At the same time, you must realize that God is so sovereign and so cool that God can adopt this posture. And this is just part of God. It's not something God can control. If you're omniscient, you're omniscient. <laughs> right? I mean, you can't fault God for knowing the end from the beginning. But God is so cool that God, in God's cosmic perspective of things, affords human beings this thing called volitional ability simultaneously with God's sovereign knowledge. In other words, it's not like Islam where the Quran says what? If Allah will, then it'll happen. If Allah says no, no. You have no choice. You're a puppet. No, that's not what the scriptures teach. And, of course, Islam took this notion from the Judeo-Christian Bible. You know this, right? I'm, I, I, are you looking at me like I'm a cult leader or what? Are you guys, are you guys re resonating with me? Because you're, like, not responding at all. Uh, tell us again. Islam is after Christianity. Muhammad borrowed from Christianity and Jewish thought to construct the Quran. He came up with this notion of an all-sovereign God, and, but he pushed it beyond what the Bible really says. He made God into a predestinarian tyrant. And you have virtually no volition at all. Or you think you have a volition, but it doesn't matter. You're merely a puppet on the stage. Well, that's not what the scriptures say at all. It teaches a much more complicated and sophisticated notion. God is sovereign and does know the end from the beginning, but simultaneously, that knowledge does not strip you and I from having volitional ability and volitional responsibility to willfully step into God's sovereign plan or willfully step out of God's plan and this is where it gets even better. Because even when you do that, God knew that you were going to do that. So it's not like God said, Ah, well, I know you stepped out of my predetermined plan. You're going to screw everything up. No, God already knew that too. So what you have to believe, if you want to be biblical, is what is called by theologians an antinomy. Antinomos, anti-law. It's an apparent contradiction. It's something that looks illogical, but it resolves in the mind of God. So the Bible says, just believe both. Believe God's sovereign, believe that you have responsibility and choice, and live that way. Or as Abraham Lincoln said, I pray like everything depends on God, and I act like everything depends on me. Do you know that? I've heard that. You have heard that. Abraham Lincoln said that. Okay, so, yes, sir. Of course you would like to know that. You could ask God to give it to you. Just say, Lord, and I don't know if he will, I don't know if God will or not, but you could ask God to do that. Would you please give me some sort of un understanding of what the destiny of these people are going to be and show me how to act in the present in light of the destiny that you have revealed to me that is going to be theirs. You could say that to God. 
God's very cool. You can talk to him on these levels. Now, John, hold on for a second. Let me show you one passage, Acts 17, or Acts, I'm sorry. You're going to be going to Acts 17 anyways, but I want to show you one more example of this, of the prophetic perfect. You're going to stay there, uh, look at Acts 21, 10, and we're going to look down to verse 14. And uh, I wonder if anybody would loan me their belt. <laughs> You're so cool. Thank you so much. And I, I, need, a volu- I need a volunteer. Okay, now who's going to read for us nice and loud? Why? I need one volunteer to come up here. I won't hurt you too bad. And I need a reader. I need a reader. This is a good reader, right here. 21. Oh. <laughs> yeah, in honor of you visiting. And no one's going to come up here. Okay, I thank you. Wow. Uh, I am not that scary. What, what Start verse? reading. What verse? 21, 9 through, uh, what did I say, 9 through 14? 9 through 13. Twenty-one nine. Oh, who had four unmarried daughters? I'm sorry, 21, 8. The next day we left and came to Caesarea. We went into the house of Philip oh, yes, the evangelist. Okay. The next day we left and came to Caesarea. And we went into the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. While we were staying there for several days... A prophet named Agabus came by. I'm from Agabus now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. He came to us, and he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and says, Thus says the ho- saith the Holy Spirit, This is the Holy Spirit. This is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. Do I go on? Yes. When we heard this, when the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul okay, answered. Okay, people, this is your place. <laughs> Come on, tell him. He, I, what did I just tell him? He's going to be bound and arrested if he goes to Jerusalem. And you're going to just sit there? No. Don't go? No. You're not even crying. <laughs> you don't even care. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, sir. Go on. Go on. Go on, reading, yes. Okay. Then Paul um, answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And what would you say to that, my friends? <laughs> yes, you would. Some of you would say that. Now, and what does Paul say? Why do you go on weeping and crying? It doesn't matter to me. I don't care if I get bound. In fact, I don't even care if they kill me in Jerusalem. I know I'm supposed to go. So what's the point of Agabus telling him that this is going to happen? To prevent him from going? Hold this for a second. What did Agabus Agabus just do? 
by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, Agabus just had what? A download from God that enabled him to see Paul's future. And then he speaks it into Paul's life as if, in the prophetic perfect tense, it's what? He says, this, this, is, this is a destined thing. This is what's going to happen. And now what does Paul think about this? How does he use this information? He, he says, okay, if that's what God has allowed, I'm making the choice to do what? To step into it. So therefore what? God is sovereign. And we have choice. Resolved. I think. <laughs> Thanks so much. Paul. No, it wasn't wrong. He got bound, he got arrested and bound in Jerusalem. Yeah. John. Yeah, and that's like such a complicated, that is such a complicated thing to get into. And I, this is what I want to say that, and if we go back to, if we go back to Socrates, if, right, if we go back to Socrates, it's like when you go up and you see the light and you, he says, you'll find the source, you'll find God. But, and you'll sit there and you'll reason about it. And then you're going to come back down and start reasoning with other people about your experience. And some people get themselves into that particular posture. And some people get themselves into the Islamic posture. And some people get themselves into the totally opposite po posture, which is, well, God's kind of himself bound, and it's all based on us. Go through the tr TV channels and watch Christian preaching, and that's what you're going to hear if you don't do this, God, you know, and it's all on you, what you're going to do. God's bound. God wants to bless you. But you can't, God can't do anything until you do what you're supposed to do. Then God will do. So you get the whole spectrum, and all it is is people who have seen Christ, they come back down and they reason it out differently. Well, interesting as it may be, it can also lead to absolute paralysis. Because this information is not given to us so that we can sit and ponder things that are t truly beyond us. And that's what the notion of antinomy is trying to suggest. Some theologians, this is their, they say, you're never going to figure this out. You're finite. How can you figure out the infinite mind of God? So just accept it as a given. God has a future, knows what it is, and also has created the universe in such a way that you are truly free to act, especially if you're a Christian, because now you have Christ inside of you. And if you live that way, it's the best of both worlds. Okay, so that's just, I'm throwing that out for you so that you can get a taste of kind of the cool things that go on in this class. And now I'm going to pass this around because I want you all to see this. A, city, a, a picture of the city of Athens. I've highlighted some of the key points, places. And I want you to see here is where Paul gave the talk 
right underneath the Parthenon. Uh, this is called the Areopagus, or sometimes called Mars Hill. That's where they took Paul because he had been down in this lower region, which is called the Emporium, or the Agora. And that's ancient Greek for what? The mall. So he had been hanging out at Belden Village, waxing on to all these shopkeepers and anybody that would tolerate a conversation. And in a city of Athens, is such a hip intellectual place that they finally said, well, listen, if you're going to be doing that, then we want, a, we want a formal presentation. So they took him up where they give formal presentations and say, okay, let's, let's hear it. And I just want you to see the city so that you know that this took place in time, place, history. And now turn to Acts 17, please, because we want to visit. Now, you can do this backwards, too. Not only does God know the future, but you, living in the present, can go into the past as if you were really there. So I want you to try to do that. When you are reading today, pretend you're there. Don't just look at it. Ah, this is something that happened a long time ago. And we're going to work through this text together. 1716. I'll do all the work today because we have to fly. While Paul was, in, was waiting for them in Athens. You with me? 1716. He was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So what's the first thing that he encounters? Idols. Idols. They're still there. Uh, I myself personally went there. Has anybody been to Athens? Yeah. Did you see the block? You see them laying all over the place, right? Dios, God. And he finds, eventually you'll see what he says. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews. Okay, so Saturday he's over at the Jewish synagogue. And the devout persons, those are the God-fearers, the Gentiles who want to hear something about Jewish thought. And also in the marketplace, the, empora, uh, uh, the emporium, the agora, every day. So, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, up until Sabbath, Paul's in the mall, waxing on about Jesus. And he'll talk to anybody that happened to be there. 18, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Oh, this is great sport. He runs into the Epicureans, started by a guy named Epicurus, whose philosophy was, you should maximize pleasure and minimize pain, shoot for the golden ideal, ideal of the, the perfect balance of pleasure, hedonism. And of course, it's come down to us. What's the Epicurean lifestyle? You see it advertised to this day, the Epicurean lifestyle. What is it? Epicurean eating. What is it? It's when you eat the very best of food prepared by the very best of chefs, and it's just perfect. Epicurean lifestyle is cruising the Greek islands on yachts and living the most pleasurable existence that you can. This is what Epicurus said. You should maximize pleasure and minimize pain because this life is meaningless. Meaningless. The only reason you should be here is just have a little bit of pleasure. Quit thinking about stuff like God's sovereignty and human volitional ability and straining your brain to the place where you can't even move. Just go out and... But don't, do, don't drink too much. Don't eat too much and don't have too much sex because if you do, then what? You'll ruin the pleasure. So just have enough food, enough wine, and enough sex so that you're happy. <laughs> well, how much should you have? That's up to you. <laughs> Whatever makes you happy. Isn't this a cool worldview? Come on, if you were there, wouldn't you like this? John?
Yeah. Like I say, there's all kinds of variations. Everybody's got to figure out for themselves what is pleasure and what is pain. Uh, I, personally, if I'd have been there, I don't think I would have followed that school. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's God, uh, may, may the meaningless universe bless you with that view. I don't want anything to do with that. Then, then accompanying them is these other guys named the Stoics. And they're the opposite. They believe that there's this thing called the logos that you can actually tap into. The intellectual architecture of the universe, you can have a download into your mind and you can start thinking the way this impersonal thing called the logos does. It's not a person. It's just the way things are. See, now, why did we call the Logos Institute the Logos Institute? Because John the Apostle stole their term, the logos, the, the, the logic. He stole it from them and used it in the Gospel of John when he said, in the beginning was the Logos. John the Apostle stole it from the Stoics. So you see this, what's going on here? These are people that have decided worldviews, and Paul is like trying to tell them about Jesus. The funniest thing, line in the whole thing says, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, the Greek word is spermologos, which means a seed picker. And uh, they watched, they had a term for these kind of philosophers. They were like these little birds that hopped around in between the stones where the seeds fall, and they pick up little seeds. Have you ever seen birds doing this downtown? And uh, in other words, they didn't have a comprehensive philosophy of life. They picked up scraps of learning along the way, and then they come. And so that's what they called Paul, a spermologos, a, a, a little bird picker. He doesn't have a comprehensive philosophy of life. So that's what some said. Then others said, you know, divided of opinion. He seems to be proclaiming foreign deities. Well, what's funny about this is they heard Paul talking about on one occasion, Asus, Jesus, and then they heard him talking about on an, uh, in the next sentence, the anastasis, the resurrection. And because of the way their worldview is uh, founded, because they're polytheistic and they believe in many gods, they think Asus, Jesus is one deity, and they think Anastasis, resurrection, is the second deity. They think he's pro proclaiming two gods. Isn't that amazing? Wow, what kind of worldview confusion is this? This because he was telling them of the good news about Jesus, hey, and the resurrection. We can never forget this. This is what this whole course is about. The resurrection changed everything changed human history. Okay, so Paul is telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and they say, we, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. What an invitation. Now, this is the mindset that he's speaking to. All the Athenians and foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Is that a negative statement or a positive statement or just a fact? He's writing as a historian here. What, what does that mean? The Athenians spent all their time talking about whatever was new. It's, you think it's just a fact? I, I've heard most Christians who read that text 
depart from it and do so with a sort of an attitude of superiority and scorn towards the Athenians. Like, look, you look at these people, they're like, all they do is run around and want to know whatever's new. They don't, I don't think Luke means it that way at all. I think he's describing people that are earnestly seeking for the truth. And are there people like that today? And what's the posture that, that the Christian should have towards the seekers? Welcome. Guide, guidance, love, interaction, or superior uh, stance because you've come to the light. I mean, this is just, uh, this is, I think Ac- Paul in Athens is a model for all time, also particularly for the 21st century. This is a model for how we should be. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. As I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found them, among them an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now the first thing he tells them is what? He's there and he says what? You're all lost and going to hell because you're a bunch of wicked... What's he tell them? I see that there's something inside of you <coughs> that is really seeking after God because you can't walk through the city without seeing some sort of evidence that you're a God-seeking culture. In fact, it's so God-seeking that you made sure that you didn't offend anyone out there and you had a block made that said to the unknown God, if you're out there and we don't know your name, we're sorry, we honor you anyways, we don't want to leave anyone out. You can't get any more broad-minded and, and cosmic than that. Yes, sir? The Greeks were a teacher's dream, and they wanted to learn everything new. Exactly, right. So, You'd love to have students like that. If I could, if I could live any time in human history, I would have le- lived at, at this time. Actually, I think this is the best time to live, but I would have loved to have been there at this point in human history. Yeah, awesome pl- time to live converted in Athens by Paul. I would have loved it. I would have loved to have been an Athenian and converted by Paul. In fact, he gives you the name of one of the guys that does get converted at the end of the chapter. His name was Dionysus. He names him. I would have loved to have been Dionysus. It would have been so cool. It would be the completion of everything. Okay. Um, could you see yourself, do you do, do, do you do this in your culture? Do you walk around, do you go to the mall and suspend your understanding of I'm an American in the 21st century, do you go in there and say, I am a cosmic Christian here doing ethnographic research. I just want to understand this culture. Do you ever do that? Oh, please do it sometime. Please. (laughs) Go to the mall and forget that you're an American with money. Just walk in there and say, I am a visitor from another time and place. I'm a Christian. Let me analyze this. Let me look at this from the eyes of Jesus. Jerry, you got to do it. No, no, no. No, no, Jerry. Jerry, no, no. No, what you got to do is go look at all that stuff and say, uh, if I go there, when I go there, and I stand in front of, um, uh, what is it? Oh, you have Victoria's Secret. I don't win. 
No, you wouldn't want to go in there. But you go there and you look at it, and I can look at it as a 21st century American male, which is a bad idea, or I can look at it as what? A cosmic Christian. <laughs> I say, Jesus, what does Victoria's Secret mean? Reveal unto me what this means. You guys never do this? Are you serious? This is what Paul did. And then what does it reveal to me? Well, I don't know. What does it reveal to you? I, like, I, this is a culture obsessed with a particular form of female, first of all, and a particular way of enhancing the female form. We're obsessed with that. So I come away with, we're obsessed with, with physical beauty. And that's a direct shot from where? Oh, you think it's from hell? I think it's from uh, Greece. Because if you go to Greece, as you, those of you who have gone, you see all those statues. <laughs> I take my shirt off, but you get too excited. You know, I remember in Athens one time, I was sitting in a museum, and this guy's arm, a perfect arm, was hanging down. And they took the time to carve the veins into the arm. It's like awesome. Well, what's, that all, what's that all about in Greco culture? Worshipping the body or what? No. No, they're saying this is, this is excellence. This is physical perfection. This is what you should strive for. Yes. The Olympics... We're the fruit of this. If you're going to have a perfect body, then how do you display the effects of a perfect body? You create games in which those skills and that perfection of the body can be displayed. Yes. In the nude. Uh, yes, because the body... Take off your lust glasses and just look at the body <laughs> as a creation of God. It's not inherently lustful. It's just what? Beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's just a body. Beautiful women are God's creation. Why shouldn't I enjoy them? As Bill Clinton would... No, you didn't get me. As Bill Clinton would say, it all depends on how you define enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> now, if some... Chica walks down the street and she's gorgeous. I, I'm allowed to say nice DNA. <laughs> As a Christian, I can say that, right? Next step is <clears throat> you're going too far. I, don't go I know you don't go too far. <laughs> yes, sir. No, not really, John, because there are some evidences of some female bodies. A Aphrodite? Uh, yeah, but Moses looked at females in clothes. Now, in the next era, you begin to see double-chinned women, uh, bulging stomachs, and so forth. But that's after the ideal of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's but the there are some females out there, too. The Venus de Milo, which I actually don't think she has that great of a body. But they did. <laughs> I know, well, that's not her fault. I mean, just... <laughs> Look, I have fif 15 minutes. What? <laughs> Thank you. Now, what does Paul then say? 
Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is served by human hands as though God needed anything since God himself gives to all mortals life, breath, and all things. What's that mean? Yeah, and he's speaking to a culture that's been through the Eleusian mysteries and have seen the big picture, out of which comes Socrates' allegory of the cave, which describes seeing the big light. So in other words, Paul is referencing into their culture this belief that what? That this created world, the shadowy world, actually has behind it what? What's the allegory of the cave mean? The sun is what? The cause, Socrates says, of all things. A.K.A. the closest you can get to saying what? God. God. Socrates just doesn't say that because he doesn't want to define it. He just wants to call it the summum bonum, the ultimate truth. That way Socrates doesn't have to defend anything. He can just posit it. That's why he did it. I don't want to get into arguments and discussions about whether God knows everything. or blah, 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 blah. I just want you to have that experience of realizing there is an ultimate truth. That's all Socrates cared about. Okay, so he's speaking to these people that truth, and then what? He says there really is a God who made everything. And then he asked them to think about it. Think about this for one second. If God made you and everything that exists, do you think God would care about your little shrines and temples, all your religious artifacts. Could God, the God that made everything, would God really care about that? I mean, care about it in the sense of, yes, he does care about the sparrows, but care about it in, in the sense of would God think that this is an adequate, adequate representation of God? Is it really <clears throat> the truth, or is it just a shadow? This church, I love this church. Is it the truth about God? I mean, I love this church building. Is this building the truth? Ah, but what's the ultimate truth? What is this building... What's this building represent? It, where God lives? Uh, is that what we want to send by this message? I mean, that's what people think when they walk into this building. They say, Ooh, I'm in holy ground. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? That street corner out there where the hood starts, that's holy ground, according to the Bible. Everything's holy. Why? God's everywhere. God is everywhere. God's omniscient. God's omnipresent. So this is really, in Socrates' language, a shadow, right? Where's the reality? It represents something. You say it represents what? This building represents the people of God, and the people of God represent God. So... Paul is speaking to a culture that has identified the building with what? 
with God, and he's saying, no, you're staring at a shadow. What you need to do is turn your eyes away from the shadow. Now that you've seen it, that's great. Turn your eyes to the true source, God who made it. Quit obsessing about all these temples and idols and all this stuff. Is it making sense to you what he's doing? Okay, now, next part. From one, now, verse 26, what's your translation say? From one what? Nope, who's got a footnote that says something different? That's not what he said in Greek. Who's got a foot? Aha! From one ima, from one blood, he made what? All ethnes, all peoples. Why does he say it that way, from one blood? Blood. Because blood, according to the Bible, is the symbol of life. Leviticus 17.9, the life of a creature is in its blood. Right? The life of a creature is in its blood. So he's saying, out of one essential DNA template, the essence of life, that was pre-scientific language, from one blood, from one template, God did what? Made the whole world. Everybody. All peoples. Now that truth right there, if Christians would just accept that, would be the immediate end. If you, t- if you truly turned your whole soul to this and understood what he, that means, what would end in America or across the world if the world would accept this? Racism. Racism. It would be over instantaneously. Because you would realize that every person that you look at, whether you want to admit it or not, is really your sister. You and I are related. That's so weird. I know. <laughs> That's crazy. We're all related. And we play this little human game. We say, well, my, my real relations are who? The ones that are proximate to you. <laughs> but if you want to look at it at God, from God's point of view, <clears throat> he sees if you guys would be the entire human race, God sees everything all at once and sees all of you as what? You're all one family. And, of course, down here, (coughs) we have the original human pair from one blood. And uh, from God's point of view, God sees us all as one organic, connected human race. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? Why don't we teach that? Why don't we talk people about this? And more importantly, what would happen if we actually started doing what? living that way. Like say if God says that's the way things really are and you're standing in time-space history, then what should you start doing? Treating everybody that you meet like they're your family. That would be crazy. Judge. Uh, even Jerry. <laughs> Especially Jerry. Every family's got to have a Jerry. <laughs> God, all, all through the Bible, he talks about how wonderful it is for Christians to get together and be in a community. And, and that's what I meant when I said, if God's looking down here and seeing all these people in this 
church. Yes. I know that's what you meant. Yes, you meant that the people, yes, of course. That's why the building's made up of individual blocks. Why is that? That was the architect's way of cosmically illuminating you about something. What's, what does Peter say that the church is made up of? We're built on the living stone, Jesus, and what does it say that we are? living stones. So when you go out in the parking lot, when you leave today, run your hands over the outside of those stones because every one of them represents a person that's been brought into the body of Christ and cemented into place. And we all are doing what for each other? Building. And then up at the top is Dave DeVries. <laughs> And Christ is the cornerstone that makes the building square. He's also, not Dave DeVries, up at the top, the capstone is who? Jesus. He's the foundation stone. He's the capstone. He's the capstone, foundation stone. He's the cornerstone. Go outside today when you leave. This is your assignment for today. Run your hands over the stones as you leave, then go to the mall and be a cosmic Christian. Well, let's do it sometime. I will do it with you. I'm going to miss Oxford. Maybe we have to come back next week for Oxford. It's not going to happen. I even brought pictures of Oxford for you. Uh, Google Addison's Walk, A-D-D-I-S-O-N-S. I'll talk about next week. You won't be here. Addison's Walk. And uh, it's a walk around Modlin College in Oxford, and it's where Tolkien and Lewis walked one night in October. So Mo Addison's Walk, Tolkien and Lewis Conversation, something like that. You'll come across it. Um, it's okay. We didn't get there. We'll get there next week. But I want to finish this because it's so important. Why did God make humans? Verse 26, from one ancestor, one blood, he made all nations to inhabit the earth, and he gave the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So God set the whole thing up. God said, you're going to live here at this time in human history, and you're going to live in this place. So you're here as an American in the 21st century. Why? Because God providentially provided for that. And uh, you could have, God could have said, no, you're going to grow up in Africa in 135 A.D. But no, God said, you're going to live in 21st century America. And God bless you. <laughs> you need it, yes. Now, why did God do this? Verse 26 and 27. So that they would do what? Search. Seek. Seek. Does anyone have a footnote that says what he really said? Grope. Oh, where's a guy? I want to grope some guy. George. Grope. George. What does grope mean in legal terms? Grope. They have that now in uh, some of these sex offenses. Yeah, to there grope somebody. Judge Hawes can tell you completely about that. Can he? Yeah. <laughs> To grope someone? What's it mean? Well, it means to uh, 
fondle somebody, to feel them, to touch them inappropriately, without their consent, in a time and a place where it's not appropriate, without their consent. Hey, I'm telling you that that's the word that Paul uses here. He made us human beings so that we would do what? Grope. Grope for what? God. You're supposed to walk through this world and feel it, touch it, smell it, grope it, grope it, but not for its own self. Why? You grope this world to find God. That's why we've been created. Now, because of the time, I have to end. You will be so entranced with this, I know you will go and read the rest of Acts 17. And we'll pick it up next week at that point. And I know that you will go and do a cosmic mall experience this week. Now, I want to hear some reports on that, but don't leave yet, because I want to leave you with this thought. What Paul, I'm going to give you the big idea that he gave to them, and then you think about it this week. Do you know what he eventually concludes? He says, all of your religions, all of your temples, all of your myths, everything that you believe, <clears throat> it's like a prism. And that prism is, is, and you are the prism. Humans are the prism. We're made in God's image. And God's truth shines from God into the human experience, into the human beings. And as we grope, we reason. And as we reason, we think imaginatively. And as we think imaginatively, we do what? We reflect, we write, we think, we build. And what is Paul's point? All your temples, all your idols, all your myths, everything that you've experienced as a culture, what is it all a reflection of? your attempt to find God. Now, isn't that the most incredibly positive way that you could speak to a not-yet-Christian? You could say, I honor you because I can see that you've been trying to find God. It's a lot better to start that way than to say what? You, you people are uh, lost, blind, ignorant, and I have the truth and I'm going to eliminate you. Think about that when you go to the mall this week. You look at all these people. What are you gonna, when you go to the mall and do a, the cosmic Christian thing this week, as you look at all these milling hordes there too, you're going to say what? These aren't milling hordes. These, this is my family. <laughs> hey, you want to have a better experience? Go over there to Walmart. How many? When's the last time you've been to Walmart? Go on over there and have a cosmic Christian experience. <laughs> All right, God bless you. I'll see you next week. <clears throat>